This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's January, it's now 2022, and many of us have new resolutions or hobbies to get us started for a more positive year, and many people have committed to connect with nature more regularly. One thing that helped me massively was using a top-notch pair of Leica binoculars. The Leica Ultravid HD binoculars are perfect for people with any range of experience in nature spotting. With their high-end optics, durability, and simply the fact that they're dead easy to use, these binoculars get you on your way to spotting wildlife without disturbing it and helping being able to identify things from afar. Not only is the kit brilliant, but Leica offer finance plans to fit you too. Meaning you can pay in bits rather than having to have the cash up front. Which let's face it, in January, it's what we all need. You can read more about Leica's range, pricing and support on their website, which is in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Into the Wild. I'm your host Ryan Dalton. As always, thanks so much for clicking play on that pod. What a week it's been as I sit here and record this intro on the 14th of January at 1918 on a Friday evening. I just have one one more day, two more days, a day and a half <laughs> until I find out if I am getting on that plane. This is weird, isn't it? Because as I record this, I have no idea if I am going to go to Namibia. I hope I am. But when you're listening to this, I might well be in Namibia. (laughs) Isn't it wonderful how podcasts work? (laughs) We are all nearly set. We are literally just waiting for that green light of a negative PCR test. I'm going to be on that plane. Then I'll be in Namibia traveling around. Oh, it's exciting times. I hope you lot are excited for Beyond the Trigger because, to be honest, this is a dream come true for me to be able to get an opportunity like this. Um, I'm absolutely buzzing. But this week, I am shattered. I've been working so hard. I'm so sleep deprived. I'm food deprived. I'm not drink deprived. Well, I am now. I've got no drink in. But um, (laughs) my body's not drink deprived. (laughs) But I'm nearly there. Nearly there. A couple more days, people. But it's lovely to be talking to you and bringing you a brand new episode but I feel like we need a bit of positivity certainly as I record this now this week has been the UK government have slapped the British public in the face so I feel like I need to bring you some nice naturey goodness news with 60 second nature news so should we get on this now let's have some fun ready let's do this A 33-foot-long ichthyosaur fossil has been found in the county of Rutland and is the largest ever found in the UK. As well as being the biggest, it is also the most complete fossil of its kind in the UK and is thought to be the first ichthyosaur of its specific species found. Giraffe populations have grown 20% since 2015 across all of Africa and now is just over 117,000, according to the Giraffe Conservation Foundation. Declared extinct in 2003, the tequila splitfin fish has been reintroduced to its native river in Mexico thanks to being bred in captivity at Chester Zoo in the UK. And Batman Loach returns. After being absent for 50 years, the Batman River Loach that scientists thought was extinct has been found in rivers of southeast Turkey. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. There we go. That's. I feels like nature news is getting easier. Do you know why? Because I'm typing less. <laughs> Turns out the less there is to say, the quicker you can get it done. How did I make it through my GCSEs? Right. Okay. I often 
make out on Into the Wild that I know less than I do. I actually know some... I do. I know some stuff about wildlife and nature. And quite often when I've got someone on the show, we might be talking to a topic where I do have a little bit of knowledge. So the questions I ask, I do actually know the answers to. But I like to get to the very beginning of the topic and we work our way through. But on the contrary, sometimes there are some episodes I record where I know sweet F.A. about what we're talking about. And I've got to say, this episode was that. This is a slightly different episode. We are actually leaving the natural world in, in some kind of a way. And we're going a lot of distance up. <laughs> a lot of distance up. I could have just googled how high up is space. But instead I just went a lot of distance up. What I'm trying to say is we are talking about space with an astrophysicist. Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti, who is a podcaster as well as a knowledgeable man about all things up there in the right old sky, big open world of space. Now, talking about space may seem a bit of a different topic for Into the World, but Alfredo and I spoke about how knowing how life forms on this planet can tell us so much about the galaxies above us. And of course, if I've got an astrophysicist on the show, I am totally going to ask them to blow my mind with some facts, and Alfredo did that. Not only talking about space, but Alfredo is the chair of Pride in STEM. Setting up five years ago, Pride in STEM is almost at the stage of becoming a registered charity. <laughs> we spoke about the importance of representing LGBTQ people in STEM, where the issues lie and what positive changes Alfredo and his colleagues have seen in the last five years. So enough of my mouth, I'm going to introduce a wonderful episode with a wonderful man. This is Our Planet in Space and Pride in STEM with Dr. Alfredo Carpanetti. Alfredo, thank you so much for joining me on an episode of Into the Wild. How are you and how's your day been? I'm very good. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And yes, uh, I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited. I said to you before we press record that this is a topic that I... Right, it's not... It's not Actually, it's not uncommon in, in Into the Wild for me to not know much about the topic we're talking about. But this one, I was like, I I have no idea. It's such a different... Are you excited about kind of bringing a, a brand new theme to Into the Wild? <laughs> I am extremely excited and honoured that I can uh, do that. <laughs> we'll do it justice. <laughs> you will. I have no doubt of that. Um, so let's kick off right at the beginning. Do you want to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Yes, so I am Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. I am an astrophysicist by trade and a science journalist. Uh, that's my actual main job. And uh, what I do, I work for Eiffel Science. I am uh, the senior science writer and the space correspondent. I do a lot of podcasting, uh, both for work for Eiffel Science, but also my personal one that is called The Astroholic. And I'm also the chair and founder of Pride in STEM, which is uh, the largest UK charitable trust. Hopefully soon to be a charity. We have made the application. Amazing. <laughs> Bureaucratic times, notwithstanding. <laughs> um, and Pride in STEM works to support and showcase uh, the work uh, of LGBTQ plus people mm. in STEM. And it has been uh, an honor to serve uh, as the chair for Pride since uh, its inception five years ago. That's amazing. I can't wait to chat more about that because that's so like, it's such great work. And I can't wait to hear about the journey that it's been on in the five years. Also, fellow podcaster, which I forgot to put in the questions at all. So feel free to plug your podcast at any point, by the way. Yeah, well, many um, podcasts. 
I'm sure that I can uh, uh, drop uh, a hint or two to all the <laughs> different podcasts. <laughs> um, do you find with your science communication, I mean, podcasts have blown up, especially in the COVID years, as such an accessible way for people to learn, to escape, to laugh and to be entertained. Do you find that's really helped with your science communication? Yes, I would say that it brought a completely different dimension to my uh, science uh, communication. Uh, I sort of had to be a little bit strong-armed by my husband into podcasting. Um, the reason for is, if you haven't guessed uh, uh, by now, uh, I'm Italian. <laughs> no. So I have an accent. <laughs> a beautiful accent. Thank you. Uh, but I do uh, feel that uh, sometimes my uh, oral communication is not extremely clear, especially when I cannot add uh, gestures. I'm Italian. Mm. Gesticulation yes. is a good 40% of how I communicate. <laughs> That's fine when I do live talks, when I do mm. video, like... I've been doing uh, live uh, video streaming in which I make cocktails and talk about space for years. But the idea of doing a podcast, you know, I have lots of friends that do podcasts uh, that have been doing podcasts for like five, six years. Mm. I've been saying, oh, you should do one, you should do one. And I'm just like, oh, but I'm, I, I really felt that I was too foreign uh, to, uh, to do a podcast. And then my husband just um, showed up with like, hey, what do you think about this title, The Astroholic, which is the name of my blog and uh, <laughs> my nickname, The Astroholic Explains. And it's like, I ask you questions about space and you give me answers. And I was like, that sounds good. Uh, I could be tempted. And I was like, and this is the, uh, my husband is a uh, um, video media uh, mm. editor and uh, great graphic designer I was like, and this is the artwork for it so I was like oh this is beautiful <laughs> I really want to do it now so that's how we started that's and, amazing uh, it has been uh, interesting and it's been good fun and I think as I said brings a completely new dimension because it is very different from editorial so I write a lot uh, in, in terms of editorial pieces breaking news etc so as a needs to have a lot more longevity when you do a podcast. But also, you cannot rely on the standard uh, trick of the trade of video, especially for an astrophysicist, because, ooh, I'm not sure what to put here. Pretty image of a galaxy. <laughs> you have the attention of the audience. Is that your tricks in the trade? <laughs> Seriously, you. whenever I uh, give talks, for me, it's just so much easier to populate uh, the talks with like, oh, pretty pictures, pretty pictures. Oh, that's hilarious. Incredible, yeah, incredible animation uh, for NASA. Uh, yeah. And so it is uh, making sure that people keep their attention to our podcast uh, needs to be completely different. Yeah. And it's been a very good challenge. Uh, and... I think it's a fascinating challenge. It made me having to come up with better questions. Yes. Yeah. That's so interesting. I didn't even think about that because that's, I guess that's similar in the animal or the wildlife world is that if you start losing them, you just show a picture of an animal. That's why it's so easy to talk to people in wildlife parks because you've got the animals there. Like, do you know what I mean? A lot of the time. That's the power of some of these parks, I guess, is that you captivate your audience so easily. But I didn't think about that with space. <laughs> see it's I always feel that uh, 
it is so much easier to talk about space uh, than talking about any other aspect of physics. Uh, and I have a, a master in theoretical physics, uh, and I do love particles uh, and stuff like uh, Large Hadron Collider. It's fantastic, and I could talk about it for hours. But if I need to give a lecture, that gets more difficult. I cannot just say, hey, here's a picture of atoms. <laughs> here's a picture of Tony Stark from Iron Man. That'll do. <laughs> or, like, to be honest, I could just, I don't know, put a, a picture of galaxies. This is a picture of atoms from really, really far away. You don't have to go uh, into the. <laughs> we don't need the microscope for this one, yeah. guys. <laughs> just look at the power from distance. <laughs> Oh, that's brilliant. Um, let's bring it back to this planet just for a short yes. time. But what do you love most about the natural world? I've been extremely fortunate and privileged to be able to travel across the world. And I think how marvellous is that we are on a planet that is just so full of uh, variation. To bring a little bit of space into this, it's just like <laughs> you think of the rocky planets uh, mm. in uh, in the solar system or the more stable moons. Uh, you have you are pretty much uh, on a single climate. You have the frigid, dry desert of Mars. Uh, you have the acid, uh, lead melting uh, temperature of Venus. You have frozen moons or volcanic moons. And instead, here on Earth, you have everything. You have desert, you have oceans, you have ice caps, forests. Literally, it is incredible. And it has always been fascinating to, I love traveling, go everywhere I travel, try to go and see the natural beauty of those places. And it's always incredible. You find things that reminds you of something else, but they all have this unique particular aspect that is just theirs. And being on this huge, huge planet, we get to see and explore it. Literally, thanks to the, the internet, we can, in even more fantastic way, I think it's that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we should really wake up every day and think, how fortunate we are to be alive. That's such a wonderful way to put it, because, yeah, that, the beauty of this planet is in its diversity, isn't it? It's just so diverse of every aspect. It's it's insane. Yeah, that's a very lovely oh, point. thank you. I like that. I think that's the best answer I've ever had to that question. Well, I, I can't help bring space into it. And you brought space into it! <laughs> um, so, right, let's talk about space, shall we? So you're an astrophysicist, which I think is one of the coolest sounding titles in science, and I will fight that to the death. Um, what got you into the study of outer space? How did that journey begin? Well, uh, actually, it's the natural world that got me into space. Oh, uh, wow. When I was little, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I wanted to study dinosaurs. Amazing. This is uh, pre-Jurassic Park, so I'm... Uh, uh, <laughs> Jurassic Park... That's always good to hear. Is, this thing is uh, not trying to be a hipster and saying I was uh, into dinosaurs where they, they were still underground. But <laughs> Before it was Before cool. Before it was cool, but uh, no, definitely Jurassic Park had a huge... It's still my favorite movie. 
uh, huge impact on uh, of, of course growing up uh, me, but I really wanted to be a paleontologist. And I was traveling with my family to London, and uh, mm. so I think very early 1990s, I had a guidebook and talked about this natural history museum. And so um, I asked for, uh, in preparation for a um, dinosaur encyclopedia, which I pretty much memorized. And then when we got here, I discovered that my parents had no intention to go in there. They wanted to go to the Victorian <gasps> Albert Museum. I know. No. I love the Victorian Albert Museum next door, but for a nine-year-old me, that was not uh, where I wanted to go. So I knew that it was just across the road. And when we got to the Victorian Albert Museum, I tried with my family that the moment you get distracted, I will just run across the road. I will be in the Natural History Museum. <laughs> so my dad relented and decided to accompany me. That's very, very good planning for an eight-year-old, can I just say? I, I do like I, I do like to plan. <laughs> and dad, I think that at that point, he realized that I wasn't going to be a normal child, mostly because there is this um, this fossil of uh, Calothesis, uh, and it was famous at the time, and now it's wrong, uh, because inside the the chest, uh, the rib cage, there are the bones of uh, tiny telophysis. Oh, wow. And so the first thing they thought was, ooh, they were giving uh, birth to live youngs. Mm. And then they realized they were a bit too big and so uh, they were cannibals. So I was explaining the cannibal aspect and my dad was like, what the hell is this <laughs> child about? Now... Now, uh, it's not true that they were cannibals. Uh, they just think that uh, they fossilize on top of uh, oh, um, right, some okay. young ones, uh, which ruins uh, this fantastic story of mine. <laughs> but that is not how I got into space. But while I was there, at the time, there were still different hypotheses on how dinosaurs uh, went, and uh, not just dinosaurs, 70% uh, of uh, species uh, mm. went extinct at the end of the Cretaceous. Uh, and there were asteroids, volcanoes, and there was a word that I was not familiar with, supernova. So I made a note. And when I came back to, uh, to Italy, I went on the encyclopedia, looked supernova, there was very little about it. So, yeah. And so I asked for a space encyclopedia. And that was... Uh, that was the, the beginning the of the end. That was yes. <laughs> um, that was the moment that I became uh, literally so fascinated, and then I got through all the classic uh, uh, books. In Italy, we have so many famous uh, uh, science communicators that are absolutely fantastic that brought me up uh, into both natural world and into astronomy, uh, but I read Stephen Hawking, etc. And the passion grew and grew so much that uh, pretty much when I started high school, I knew that I just wanted to be an astrophysicist. Wow. And I did a deviation in theoretical physics for my master simply because after three years of astrophysics in my undergrad, I thought, maybe I'm limiting myself too much. Uh, let's see what else uh, is out there in the world of physics. And I did enjoy it, but I was like, nope. My first love was the right answer. <laughs> nope, I was right. <laughs> I can tell you that I did something that I loved as a 
as a layperson um, reading about string theory, when I actually started it, the, there was the first, it was the first lesson, it's the only exam that I did sign up for that I did decide not to sit. Because at the end of the first lesson, after an hour of just calculation on the blackboard, the professor just went, and you can all see how this implied the existence of a five-dimensional membrane. And I'm just like, what? and everyone else was nodding. Everyone else was nodding. And I'm just like, none of this nope. made any sense to me. And I'm, I am perfectly happy to admit that there are things that I'm not smart enough about. And that was them. <laughs> it was just like, okay, that was clear. String theory, not for me. I think you just described 90% of my high school years. <laughs> just, the teacher going, so you can all see me going, um, actually, miss. <laughs> you see, especially in, in lower education, high school, etc., there, um, there should be a lot more flexibility because we all learn mm. in different ways. Yeah. But at a university level, after four years of uh, hardcore physics, I was expecting to at least follow it a lot more Instead, like nothing, absolutely nothing <laughs> got into my brain that day. It's a, nothing. <laughs> did you just, did you walk out or did you just nod your head along with everyone else? No, no, no. I literally, that was the end of the last, the, the hour. So I closed my book, put it in and just like, I'm never coming back to, to do this course. <laughs> it was an elective, so I didn't have to sit it, but it was just like, no, this is, I literally knew that that was Beyond me. I bet uh, uh, about another four or five people did the same thing. They must have done. Hmm. You couldn't have been on your mm. own. Because a lot of people nod, but a lot of people don't get it. Oh, I feel... You see, I always love this quote about quantum mechanics is that you're never supposed to understand quantum mechanics. Like, you do the calculation and you work out things, but you always need to have this sort of feeling that you, have, you are on the edge of an abyss. Because it doesn't make sense based on all the logic that we're brought up with. We are apes that should be scavenging in the savannah. Yeah. Instead, we are trying to understand the ultimate mystery of reality. <laughs> we are not supposed to truly understand that. It needs to be a little bit ineffable. Yeah. But I could do the calculation. I could do and sometimes there are some things in astrophysics that I do the calculation to convince myself of, oh, yes, that's why that is. Because logically, it doesn't fit with how I see the world. <laughs> but the calculation is like, prove me wrong. <laughs> but with string theory, not even the calculation could save me. I would just like, nope, too much, too much. It is <laughs> nice to hear a scientist say, sometimes I don't get it. That's, I don't think that's said enough. I think it's very important. Like there is so much things that I do not get, and even um, I have to read so much science every day. And sometimes it's great that there are organizations that provide expert commentary, especially with medicine and especially with uh, stuff like uh, COVID, that has been super super useful to get uh, other opinions, other expert opinion. But when it comes to astrophysics, uh, like. Mine is an expert opinion. And sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't get this. I really don't get this. And so I'm just like messaging friends that are still asking me this. Like, what do you think of this? Because <laughs> I do not get it. 
And sometimes they're just like, yeah, it's rubbish. And sometimes like, oh, no, 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 it's super cool. Is it this new idea? Let me explain it to you. And it is very, it's, I think it's very important that we admit when sometimes we don't get things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, admit when you're wrong and admit when you don't get it. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, that's part of, I was going to say that's part of life, but it is part of life, isn't it? It's, it's part of whatever you do. You're not going to get everything. You're going to like everything. You're not going to be thrilled to take part in everything like like with me and cold water swimming i don't get it i don't want to do it right so <laughs> um is there a certain part of your job that you love or excites you the most two parts um when uh, when it comes to my science journalist job i think the most exciting thing is that every day i'm learning new things mm. if i literally it it is a dream come true that i can spend the day just uh, Ooh, learning something new. Ooh, this is fascinating. Ooh, it's it's brilliant. <laughs> and I think the other thing that really excited me is actually talking about space. Yeah. This is why I love doing uh, in-person talks because uh, I adore talking about space and I won't get people excited about space. So it is uh, it is really great uh, to have an audience in front of me and just uh, tell them stuff. That must be so nice. It's like just sharing your passion for something. And yeah. do, oh, okay. Here's a question. I was planning on asking. Do you? <laughs> this is such a Ryan question. Do you? Do you like watch? Have you ever watched a space film? Is it? Does it annoy you? The science in it, or do you ever like? Do you, this is just entertaining. Most of them, uh, I would go with. Oh, this is just entertainment. Yeah. But there are a few. <gasps> what that, are they? Okay. <laughs> so one that people constantly ask me. Oh, what do you feel uh, about this? Is uh, Interstellar? I didn't like. I didn't like it. I enjoyed it, but I didn't like. It. People think that I would be upset uh, that uh, the stuff about uh, the time passes different, uh, which they exaggerated, and the fact that there is uh, love through black holes. Uh, sorry, sorry, spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's when I was just like, uh, you know what? They have taken some real science concept and they have peppered it with other things right i can respect that one that i can i always uh, um one that really really makes me angry is sunshine sunshine is the one with cillian murphy i've not seen it it's uh, 15 years old yeah um, <laughs> yeah it's not new <laughs> um and it's about the sun the sun dying which is Interesting, um, sorry, so they had Brian Cox as a consultant there um, for uh, that part, but uh, it was, then they restarted it with uh, um, a nuclear bomb. They restarted it? But the point is, they tried to put so much science about how a star works, and then their solution is like, yeah. we just throw a nuclear bomb at, at the surface of the sun, and it's just like... <laughs> Do you understand how big yeah. the earth, the sun is? Like yeah. you can fit a million. It's kind of Hollywood's answer to most things, though, isn't it? Sun. When it's when it's action or science, it, it's any comet film in the yeah, last it's like, twenty years is will use a nuclear bomb to throw it off its course. Even I can predict that plan. But at least, <laughs> but that's at least good to know. We think that that should work, and that 
Yeah, and actually we will uh, we will have uh, some exciting things in October that uh, show if we can. What are you telling me? <laughs> Please tell me there's not an asteroid coming towards Earth. Push an asteroid, of course. Oh, thank God. Okay. It's completely safe. Didymos. It's called um, the asteroid is called Didymos, and as a little moon, and in my expert opinion, the little moon should have been called Didymos. Yeah, absolutely, and I support you with that decision. <laughs> Thank you. Instead, the the, uh, the people at the International Astronomical Union I call it Dimorphos. Oh, no, because it's the name of a Greek twin. Anyway. So, DART is just a kinetic impactor, so it's going to uh, go really fast and slam into Dimorphos, the little moon, mm. and change the orbit of this little moon slightly around Didymos. Uh, and that should prove that we can actually use a kinetic impactor, so a spacecraft going really fast and slamming into an asteroid or comet, to move it off course. Wow. I mean, we need that proof. Yeah, that do we need that proof? I don't know if we do need that proof, but we all have that proof, and it will be. We do need that proof because we, when it comes to planetary protection, we really do not have much going on. We really think that oh, we can send a a nuclear weapon to the uh, to push away a comet or asteroid, and just like. Wow. That's not tested. Never even done a practice. Worst case, we'll just send George Clooney up in a spacecraft, and I'm sure he'll fit. Yes. <laughs> Why George Clooney? Not Bruce Willis. Wasn't George? What George? What was George Clooney in? Wasn't he in um? Gravity. Was that Gravity? And that's uh, and that is not about asteroid. That is about another more terrifying things that happen. <gasps> no. Yeah, that's not about asteroid. No. But I just, I, yeah, yeah. I was, I was probably thinking of Bruce Willis. So you can't even get my Hollywood actors right. <laughs> Let alone astrophysics. They're pretty much the same person. Right. So, some some people, like, you know, so, so talking about space on a wildlife, nature, and conservation podcast is, you know, some listeners might be a bit like, wait, what? What am I, have I tuned into the wrong show? And some people may think that space and life on our planet are kind of two separate things. But are they connected? I think it's, they're very connected. First of all, um, everything that makes life formed in uh, stars long, long time ago. Many, many different stars. The sun is the sort of engine that produces the energy for all life on Earth. And uh, maybe life uh, didn't start here, but the building blocks of life uh, came from space. How, it, would, how important, so in your work, how important is understanding how things work in our galaxy to understanding life on our planet? I actually think uh, we should uh, reverse the question. I think uh, the importance of understanding life on Earth and how life uh, came to be will provide a completely new understanding of uh, our galaxy and uh, space in general. Mm. Because if we do understand what are the requirements for a planet uh, to host life and for planets to have a chance at life, maybe not post, it will inform what are we expect to look elsewhere in the galaxy. And I firmly believe that there are probably more than 100 billion planets in the Milky Way. Jesus. We cannot have won a lottery of one in yeah. 100 billion. And maybe be intelligent life uh, that can 
build civilization and communicate into the cosmos are very rare. Maybe most of the life uh, out there is uh, little goo, little slime <laughs> across the galaxy. But it feels that it's so unlikely that it's just uh, it's just us. Yeah, out there. And I think in realms of trying to explore it and trying to understand it, we are still in the very early stages. Like that's it's not like we've been doing this for thousands of years. We've been doing this for if you looked at an hour, it would be like less than a second. Do you know what I mean? We've been actually trying to research this. So who knows what's what's going to be explored? Exactly. And I think it's fascinating. We are truly at, in an epoch of exploration in whichever aspect of science. And it's it's so exciting. Yeah, it's, it is. It is so thrilling. So life on this planet, I mean, how did, what are the theories of how this planet got here what what are the guesses what are the theories behind that so either the building blocks uh, uh came through comet and asteroid on the surface of the planet and it could be very simple we know that there are organics uh, so any molecule with carbon that is very mm. vague <laughs> <laughs> um and, but we can find organics across in between stars, uh, on asteroids, on comets, on other planets in the solar system, on moons, they're everywhere. Uh, even more complex stuff, uh, like the building blocks of amino acids, it's fascinating. There is a nebula at the center of the Milky Way mm. that has 50 different type of molecules. And among them, there is ethylformate. Okay. And it's one of my favorite uh, uh, things to talk about because I do... Uh, an, as I mentioned in a lot of my talks, I do cocktails while I talk about space. And why ethylformate is important, your listener might have told, never heard of ethylformate. Correct. But I'm sure you smelt it and you have tasted it. Um, ethylformate is the smell of rum. Oh, I had one yesterday, Eth- yes. <laughs> ethylformate, and if you don't drink, Ethylformate is about half the taste of raspberries. Oh. So there is a cloud of gas about 150 light years across, 26,000 light years away, that has the molecule that gives rum its smell and raspberry its taste. Does that mean that... Okay. Does it smell of rum then? Uh, well, no, it would be very, uh, nebulas are extremely diffuse, uh, more diffuse than our even finer mist uh, that we have on the planet. They're very, very spread out. But the fact that this molecule is there, and then we find it in so many living organisms on Earth, uh, tells us that there is this crucial connection between Earth and space. And maybe what it's needed to create life, so the basis of the DNA the self-replicating molecules uh, could only form in the right condition here on Earth. Or maybe there are right conditions also in space that we are yet to find or yet to understand. There was a moment then when I just, I think I had an out-of-body experience where I went up and saw myself ask an astrophysicist if a nebula smells of rum. <laughs> it's, it is a fair question. <laughs> thank thank we... you so much, Alfredo, for saying that. Think of all the beautiful Hubble pictures that we see of the nebulae. It all seems so solid. Yeah. It is very 
difficult to understand that they are span huge distances, so they are very, very diffuse. Literally, even if you think of the finest, I don't know, mist or smoke, they are even more diffuse. Wow. Like if you were if you were inside, you wouldn't be feeling like you're in the midst, midst of fog. Wow. You would see it at the edges, but not, not close by. Like if you were in inside, you would see the the accumulation at the edges of this nebula, but not it's not like you wouldn't be able to see your hands or millions of kilometers ahead of you. Wow, that's mad. What I'm, I've, I've got to ask this because I can always hear every one of my listeners asking this question. How do we know that molecule is in that nebula? Um, so we use light uh, because molecules interact with light at specific uh, frequencies. Mm. Uh, so by a lot of hard work from chemists, <laughs> uh, we know uh, what kind of frequency light reacts. Wow. And so by looking at uh, nebulous stars, uh, plants, you can collect the light uh, and you see where there are interactions uh, and you can say, ah, ah, that's where, that's what in, it's in there. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. I've got to ask you this question. I've got to ask a question yeah. like this. I have to, because the, the reason why I look forward to this episode the most is because I just knew I was going to learn things like I've just learned and my mind's going to be blown. What is, for you, Alfredo, the coolest thing you've learned about our galaxy? On top of all of the things that I've told you... Yeah, apart from all the other stuff you've just said. I think uh, uh, my third thing is that our galaxy rotates. takes about 240 million times for the sun to go around the, the galaxy. And the most exciting things about that tells us that... The, the dinosaurs pretty much existed on the other side of the galaxy. Oh, yes. That's what I was looking for. That's what I was looking for. Oh, amazing. Oh, I wonder what's going to happen by the time it gets to the other side again. <laughs> I don't know. We can take bets. Uh, can uh, can the humans survive uh, for longer? <laughs> that is way... Seems shaky at the Let, moment. Let's see what happens in the next, I don't know, year? Shall we? <laughs> Um, amazing. Well, what an incredible chat. I, I want to now ask you some questions about this um, organization you started because it is it's yeah. incredible, it's important, and it's it's motivating to know that organizations like this are starting. So you said at the beginning you are chair of Pride in STEM, and for people that are listening, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Maths. Can you tell us a bit about what this means and how it came about? It came about without uh, a not a major plan. We we seen there were um, organization networks of support for uh, LGBTQ scientists uh, in the US and a lot of universities and private uh, companies in STEM have their own staff network. So we did not start it with any kind of grand plan of, oh, there is so much things that we... Uh, we can do what to do. We actually started as a marching group uh, for Pride in London. Mm. Um, there was not uh, one that was uh, uh, encompassing all the aspects of STEM. There were a few biology one, there were um, an engineering one, there was a tech one, and we were just like, it was a 
mixed bag of uh, people yeah. that's uh, just all out of universities uh, and we wanted to have uh, one of our own. And at the time, uh, in 2016, uh, the requirement was to have uh, um, either a little website with a little bio and ethos uh, so that people could join, uh, could request to join on uh, and the march with you and having an email address. So we put this together. I think the application uh, was just uh, done very, very easily because for us, it was just like it was 10 of us friends that want to march together. And if we think I asked for 20 people just in case anyone wanted to join us. Yeah. And people get in touch to join, which was great, but also got in touch for advice. Oh, wow. They There were a lot of people struggling to know how best to approach a variety of different issues when it came to navigating being a part of the LGBTQ plus community in science, technology, engineering and maths in the UK. Mm-hmm. And something that we were good and we're still good at was research. <laughs> yeah. Most of us out of university. So we start putting together material. We got in touch with Stonewall, which is the uh, biggest uh, LGBTQ plus uh, charity uh, in Europe uh, with a few other organizations. And we put together some stuff that we can send people. After a while, people start asking how they can help us and we felt that we needed to sort of formalize ourselves and we became a charitable trust by just a year after we first started. And Stonewall, um, they were organizing uh, actually just a few months after we started uh, something called the Stonewall Season and just a series of events uh, throughout London. And they were interested in having something that it was um, science-based. Yeah. And again... Another skill, apart from research, is science communication. (laughs) So we started organizing events in which uh, LGBTQ researchers could just talk about themselves a little bit. Because for me, something that is very crucial in every aspect of science communication is breaking the barrier between the scientists uh, or engineering, mathematician, uh, people in tech, and the audience. uh, Because uh, science is for everyone and everyone. It's up to the speaker to make sure that it's everything is understood. Mm. You're not teaching string theory. You are ex- this thing is different. Teaching string theory and talking about yeah. string theory. It is so. If somebody doesn't follow your talk about string theory, it is up to you to improve. And we think that breaking the barriers that scientists have the knowledge. Um, and so talking about themselves as people, as people that have identities, as people that have lives and personality and not just this holder of knowledge, uh, it is very important. And this event that we call the Mild Thinkers became very, very popular. So we started doing a lot of those. And the other aspect that we do is uh, provide resources for people that need it, but also work in a little bit of policing uh, with uh, we contrib- contributed to a few all-party parliamentary group uh, uh, search for evidence uh, in how to improve science and improve diversity in science and stuff like this. So this is what we uh, we do. We 
there are unfortunately so many barriers uh, uh, when it comes to uh, being an LGBTQ person mm-hmm. in science. Uh, we got a lot of hate online, and, and most people uh, are going like, "Ooh, why should uh, we care? Uh, who are you, etc." But all the evidence showed that uh, the people that hire care. The people, the more senior people in science, care if you are or not, and not in a positive way. Yes, yeah, yeah. Data from the states showed that about a third of uh, um, physicists, LGBTQ uh, plus physicists, are told to stay in the closet if they want to succeed in science. What? Yeah, that is unacceptable. Get out. No. And you would not, you would not ask. Uh, uh, a straight person not talk about uh, your partner yeah. if you want to yeah. succeed in science. The more absurd things in the in, in this report is that the, the senior people tell LGB scientists not to act too gay, which as a physicist made me think there must be some sort of scale of <laughs> gayness <laughs> and there must be a threshold that is acceptable. Can someone show me this scale? <laughs> Yeah, zero to Elton John. If you, senior <laughs> physicist, believe where in the scale from zero to Elton John should yeah. I fit like a, a zero to Rocket Man? And it's ridiculous. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's like Rocket Man. What a, it is absolutely ridiculous when you start analyzing, especially with a science objectivity. Mm. And we always thought that scientists are objective, but we're not. We we claim that we're objective, but we all are with the same bias. And the work that Princeton does is just a small fraction of the work that is necessary to read sides of this bias across all of the type of marginalized communities that exist on the planet. So it is very important that we raise awareness because the only way to improve science if, if we all become aware that we are brought up in a world that has prejudices and bias. And it's not our fault that we are educated with prejudice and bias. It is becomes our fault if we learn about those and we do nothing. Mm. If we do not challenge, if we do not try strive to change that, to improve the world that we are so lucky to be in, then it's our fault. And this is this is why I feel so privileged to be able to um, work with Pride and STEM to make some small changes that I hope that will be meaningful. I, I, I honestly think they will, and I, I I think as many people, well, I hope all people listening now is, I I just it I my brain can't understand someone else's brain having that prejudice. I I can't. Do you know what I mean? Saying that. You can't be like that. You can't talk about that. Like I can't comprehend how that person thinks. I just it is so alien to me that kind of thinking and prejudice against a group of people or a person. But it's fact that uh, when you do not have uh, the direct experience, uh, mm. you never had that uh, um, the prejudice challenge. Yeah, it is so fascinating. Um, so. Uh, just a few uh, few months ago, 
Uh, my nephew came to visit me in London. Is six, so I took him to the National History Museum. Of course, Museum. you did. And uh, <laughs> of course, my favorite museum in the world. And I took him to see the Kelphysis from the previous story, explaining now all the stuff. And for him, it's so natural. He never had to consider that it was weird that I am married to a man. Mm. For him, it, I am Sio Alfredo, and Chris is Sio Chris, Uncle Alpha, Uncle Chris. Yeah. It's, there's never been for him, because for all his life we've been together and we've been married for most of his life. So is, for him, it's just a natural thing. But if you have not direct experience of the prejudice and biases that we are brought up in in our society, it is very difficult to, to break. And I'm sure that... For some people that, um, for some of those senior people that said about uh, not act too gay or stay in the closet, uh, in their head, uh, they had the best intention because they probably felt like, oh, I am looking out for you because I know there are uh, people, there are the worst people out there. Yeah. But it's the non understanding of issue that you cannot ask somebody to not be themselves. Mm. And I think that for the many, many negative effects of social media that we are still trying to understand, a very, very good thing is that we've been brought in contact with yeah. such a wider variety of people mm -hmm. that really can make us better and kinder if we want to. Yes. I think it's... Crucial to say that if we want to. <laughs> Do you know what? I had this chat today and I said something about social media with the power of this. And I said, social media is a lot like alcohol. It's great if you're in control of it. It's bad if it's in control of you. I feel that has almost give a, gives us um, godlike power. We have the ability to know everything, uh, omniscient, uh, to just Google things. Uh, and... Uh, to communicate throughout the world like booming voice from the sky so especially uh, our generation maybe younger generation are getting will be better because they've been brought up with it we do not understand its power actually the old generation generation of my parents uh, i keep seeing them uh, share stuff on facebook that is clearly false mm. like I saw something that I had to debunk of uh, one of my aunties that it was a photo, like a photograph of the Financial Times website. Oh, it was about COVID vaccine. Okay. And then was written on top of it, clearly a terrible Photoshop job, probably done in Microsoft Paint, <laughs> in Comic Sans oh. about that about how there were no, uh, it was about um, the summer surge in cases, that there was no surge in case in the UK. And I'm just like, this is clearly all made up. How can you, like, how can you not see that it's a screenshot of a website with text written on top? And it's a different language because you can see that it's, there are bits that are written in English and then there are bits that are written in Italian. But it is the fact that I had to explain very calmly because I cannot say it like, look, come on, this yeah, is yeah. basic stuff. They had not had the experience. I've been on the internet 
for the last, uh, <laughs> God, this is going to date me, but 25 years, <laughs> uh, literally, I felt that I was one in my tiny, one of the first in my tiny hometown to get the internet <laughs> and consider that the deal that I had was uh, apart from the fact that nobody could be on the phone if you were on the Oh, I remember those then. times. <laughs> I had 40 hours per month of internet. And I don't think at the time I've ever finished the 40 hours. Now I feel that a day I am 40 hours on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, I feel you with that. (laughs) And for me, like a lot of things, I still get in a lot of uh, trouble (laughs) with social medias, etc. But I am familiar with it. All the generation that's skip the computer and just got um, mobile yeah. phones, do not have those kind of skills. And I think it's um, having that kind of power and not realizing the kind of power we uh, have, it could be terrifying. Yeah, I, I, yeah. well, I think, like you said, we've seen a lot of that in the last two years as well. I think we've seen what the potential could do when people are not used to, um, I guess, using the internet to its its stronger potential rather than its its, its gaps in the gaps in the system, I guess. Um, for Pride in STEM, and um, what changes, if any, have you seen in recent years for representation and support of people in LGBTQ plus and science? So I've seen a lot more organisation taking it seriously. There is a lot more talk about these issues. What the I hope, and I hope for the next five years, uh, is there is a lot more action. Yeah, It is, people are learning and are talking more. Now it's time to do more. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There's so much that has that as same thing as, as simple as that. There is so much of that. The talk was great. Now let's see the action, please. <laughs> yep. Um, last question of the podcast. If you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, what would it be? And I will allow you to include space. <laughs> uh, I actually uh, not going to include Are space. <laughs> I think no. I think uh, what uh, my bit of uh, advice is: the world is very fragile. On one hand, I was lucky enough to experience um, the Galapagos Island and to experience the Great Barrier Reef, and seeing the effect of climate change in just actually coral bleaching Mm. in both parts was something that one thing is writing it from the comfort of London. Another thing is seeing an entire beach in the Galapagos, black from volcanic and white from coral. And the other part of this advice, yes, the world is fragile, but also Life is sturdy, and I have the certainty that uh, our planets uh, would uh, easily get rid of us, <laughs> and life uh, will continue. Yeah. And this is why there are, is uh, two halves of the same advice, because what are we doing? What are we doing to our planet? We're doing to ourselves. And this is not a uh, make sure that uh, you are perfect environmentalists. Uh, we none of us needs to be a perfect environmentalist. That uh, we all need to do a little bit more. But mostly, we need to make sure that we vote for people that actually want to take action 
when it comes to safeguarding the planet. As I said, we had a lot of talks. We have a lot of people that now understand the issues at hand. Now it's time for action. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. I think it was Jim Jeffries, the comedian, that said, we're not saving the planet for the planet. We're saving the planet to survive, for us to survive. That's what the planet could not give a if we live or die. (laughs) Indeed. And I can tell you that uh, given that there is a huge universe, uh, at least least 46 billion light years across with 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars, uh, pretty much maybe even more planets, uh, there is a lot of stuff out there. If we want to survive, it's up to us. Uh, There's most likely nobody that will come and fix things for us. There is not a a cosmic uh, uh, parent uh, (laughs) coming to tidy up. Yeah. Well, Alfredo, thank you so much um, for joining me on Into the Wild. It's been an absolute pleasure and a mind-blowing chat to learn about space, life on this planet, and um, to hear about the great work that Pride in STEM is doing. And the links for all Pride STEM social media are in the write-up of this episode as well. So, Alfredo, thank you so much for joining me um, on Into the Wild. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening, Nature Nerds. If you'd like to keep up to date with the project and work Alfredo is working on, then you can do so on social media. His links are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. If you would like a shout out on the show or to be put into a draw to win a free Into the Wild podcast mug, yes please, then all you have to do is review the show on iTunes or Spotify or both and send me a screen grab, take part in our weekly nature highlight share every Sunday on Instagram, or you can tip Into the Wild via our Ko-fi link in the write-up of this episode. Of course you can do all three of those things and increase your chance of winning the monthly mug. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.